Oh, hello, people in podcast land. Welcome back. My guest today is Heather Morris, international best-selling author of the worldwide phenomenon, The Tattooist of Auschwitz. The process of creating that book involved Heather sitting down for a very, very long time, over years and years, and listening, focusing hard, being present, and cultivating a genuine skill of listening. And today, that is what we go through, using some fantastic examples which really give a better insight into the process of writing The Tattooist of Auschwitz, plus some wonderful examples from Heather's life when she was a young girl. Uh, there's some interesting points here to do with gender roles and just how much we've progressed since the 60s uh, to the present day. There's also some really important takeaways here for how to be a better parent, brother, partner, whatever it might be, even just a member of society, by being a better listener, by focusing and being present and actually allowing other people to have their say and then caring about what it is that they say. In other news, the next couple of weeks of programming are absolutely mad, including Ali Abdal, who is one of the UK's productivity experts who came first at med school in Cambridge, dropping all of his study and learning tips. The man himself, Daniel Sloss, Netflix special comedian and good friend of the show, is returning for his round two, and that will be live this Monday. I've got Andrew Doyle coming back for another time, Massimo Piglucci for another time, the rearranged episode with Chris Voss, the ex-head of the FBI's negotiation division, Constantin Kissin from the Trigonometry podcast, Jay Morton from SAS Who Dares Wins, Seth Godin, Diana Rogers and Dr. Stuart McGill all coming on within the next month, I guess. Seeing as I can't train or even walk still with the uh, the old single angle problem, I might as well record some good podcasts, so that's what you're going to get. All right, quick maths. The less that your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have, the more money that you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce the costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite and you are improving efficiency by bringing all your business processes into one platform. Over 37 thousand companies have already made the move so do the maths and see how you will profit with NetSuite. Back by popular demand NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com modern right now. That's netsuite.com modern But for now it's time for the wise and wonderful Heather Morris Many of the listeners will be familiar with your story, but can you tell us how you came to write The Tattooist of Auschwitz? Oh, absolutely, because it's one of those crazy things that uh, anyone in life can um, look for. And I guess the lesson here is when somebody asks you to do something, unless you've got a damn good reason for not doing it, then say yes. And, and I've learned that particularly from what happened with me and Lully, because I was having a... Well, a coffee with a friend who I hadn't seen for many months. I'd been putting it off. And while we were casually having that cup of coffee one Sunday afternoon, she just casually said to me, I have a friend whose mother has just died. 
and his father has asked him to find somebody he can tell a story to. That person can't be Jewish. You're not Jewish. Do you want to meet him? I said, what's his story? And she said, oh, I don't know. And I said, oh, okay, then I'd love to. So from having a cup of coffee and saying yes to that and then saying yes to meeting a stranger, the tattooist of Auschwitz you know, came about. So what happened next? Well, a week later, because that was a Sunday and, and I worked full time. Oh, this was like um, 2004, was it? Three, no, end of 2003. And um, yeah, well, a week later, the following Sunday, I knocked on the apartment door of Lali Sokolov and he opened it and he had a dog either side of him. One of them was... Well, she was bigger than about the size of an average small pony. And the, the other one was smaller than my cat. And he didn't even look at me. He just opened the door and muttered the word come. And he and the doggies turned around and disappeared. So I followed them in and he just walked into a room, a, a lounge dining room, and he just pointed to the table and went sit and pointed to a chair. So I sat and he and the doggies disappeared again. I'm getting a little bit unnerved here, as you can imagine. But a few minutes later, all three of them reappeared with Luddy bringing me the first of many, many bad cups of coffee. It didn't make a good coffee? Never. I was so grateful when our relationship got to the um, point where, you know, we were now friends and I could say to him, hey, how about we go out for coffee? Anything. <laughs> the to be able to love get these of God, of please stop making me your coffee. Uh, so th what's the writing process like? Obviously, you have this very, very emotional story, I imagine, for him to try and get out. It's a long time ago. It took a long while for you to fully eke out the entire narrative, right? Oh, absolutely. You've got to remember, this is a man, you know, 87 years of age, and he was grieving the loss of his wife and just wanted to be with her. He wanted to tell a story and I didn't know for many, many weeks, months probably, whether or not there was actually a story there that could be strung out because he kept going over the same thing. He would never finish um, a storyline or a vignette he was telling. And uh, I knew from my work that in, when you're talking to people, elderly people in particular, and people who are traumatised, that the only thing you can do to hear their story is to listen I had no pen and paper in front of me. I'm not writing anything down. I've got no recording device, nothing to distract him. And um, that was what I, ha I had to do. And that's why it sort of took those many, many weeks of me racing home and trying to frantically write down and phonetically <laughs> writing these German words that I'd never heard of. I mean, when he keeps talking about himself being the Tatavera, and I'm sitting there going, what the heck's a Tatavera? Um, until I could find some spelling resembling that word and translate it. So, yes, it was a challenge. You were working and, uh, your memory quite hard then. Well, yes, but here's the thing, and you know that this is what plays out in, in the book that um, is being released tomorrow, in my, as far as I'm concerned, because tomorrow's going to be Thursday for me. Um, it was because where I worked and from past experiences, I knew that if you actively listen to somebody, you listen to them without thinking in your head, or what can I jump in and say here? What's my two bobs worth? Uh, how should I respond? That when you're doing that, you're actually not hearing everything that's being said. And so I did have my brain through my work trained to just actually be in the moment with, with people. What was and your work was then before you were now obviously famous novelist? 
Well, for 20 years, I worked in the social work department at a major hospital here in Melbourne. So every day I was uh, talking to patients, friends, relatives, carers of, of people who were there. And um, many of them yeah, woke up that morning not knowing that they were going to end up in an acute hospital or their family members didn't. So always through periods of tragedy and trauma. And under those circumstances, uh, if you're going to help them in any way, even if you're not, you, you have to learn to listen and you don't write notes. And I guess that paid dividends when it came to sitting down with someone. How lucid at 87 can you be? Was there a lot of listening to the same story over and over? Did you hear the same tale a few times? It's a shame, obviously, that you couldn't sit down and it was perfectly chronological. Here's what you need to know from start to finish. I imagine it bounced no, around it a lot. There was none of that, uh, quite the opposite. And you're quite right. He, he would start telling one story. And this is how I knew that there was so much more to be got from him because he'd start often to say something and then he'd, he'd put his head down again and he'd shake his head and I could see him getting distressed, which told me that what he was now remembering and thinking about was very, very painful. And, and I never ever pushed him. I just had to wait till I saw an opening and I decided that opening for me with him was to invite him home to meet my family. And uh, how else can this man ever trust me if he doesn't know me? So by having him meet and get along with my husband and three adult children and openly flirt with the young adult daughter, which <laughs> is shameless, he was an absolute sod. Um, but that's fine. That's how the lully of old started coming back by being introduced to this you know, young sort of 18, 19-year-old um, hottie, as he called her. Um, but, um, yeah, and because they then shared secrets about me and so he now had the goods on me and in knowing about parts of my life, it gave him that freedom to, to now trust me and feel that he could talk to me and, and that's when it all changed and he now openly wept in front of me and with me as he did recall and remember the evil and the horror and all those amazing storylines that he had survived. It's a, an interesting point that being vulnerable to someone is one of the biggest bonding experiences that you can go through. A lot of the time, I think, mm -hmm. um, especially when perhaps when we're younger, especially if you're a guy, you presume that you bond over uh, like shared masculinity you know, kind of shared, shared strength. Uh, like yeah. you're, you're, you're courageous, I'm courageous, you're brave, I'm brave. But actually what really, really forms a friendship is showing, telling someone something which in the wrong hands would be catastrophic to you because it yeah. shows that you have faith and trust in them. Exactly. And he had to get to that point. Uh, as much as he wanted to tell his story, he was only ever going to tell a very clinical, factual story if um, if I hadn't have persevered and won over his friendship. And, yes, yeah, somebody else may have written his story, and I, I love it when I talk to journalists and they will say, well, that's not the approach I would have taken. I said, mm, I'm not sure you would have invested three years of your life in him. Not that I see it that way, quite the opposite. Um, we were friends, and after I got his story out down and I'd produced a draft of a screenplay, which is how I wrote it initially, um, and he was sort of reading that and improving that. We were just going out because he he started living again, which I guess happens after you've lost your partner. Uh, he stopped saying, I need to be with Gita. 
and he then was asking me to go out with him while he reconnected with the Jewish community that he'd pulled away from. And then all of a sudden I found myself going out as his date and him introducing me as his girlfriend and uh, sending me off to go and join the ladies. And and, uh, we then had this amazing friendship of uh, social occasions with anywhere between six to 200 uh, members of the Jewish community, coffee shop gatherings, movies. Um, Yeah, that became our life. And he had to joke with my husband, she may be your wife, but she's my girlfriend, you know. And Steve would go, yeah, yeah, okay, you want her, you can have her. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. Um, When did he pass? On the 31st of October, 2006, three years later. Wow. So that was, I'm going to guess you were, you needed all of that time, all of the remainder of his life, really, to get the story out of him. Not really. See, here's the thing about him. He was a bit of a bugger about things. And his favorite phrase to me was, did I tell you about? And every time he did that, I would just roll my eyes and go, go. And he'd start telling me something. And I'd look at him and go, no, you bugger, you haven't. And you know, I've written the screenplay, you know, we've got a producer and director working on it. Now, he was saying that uh, right up to two or three days before he died, he would continuously say, did I tell you about because he'd suddenly remember something else. We'd want to embellish or enhance something that he'd read in the script. Yeah. Gosh, who knows how much more he went to his grave with. Precisely. What do you think he would have thought if he saw the state of what happened in 2018 when the the novel came out? Well, you wouldn't be talking to me. You'd be talking to him because he would be wanting to be the person out there talking up his story. That's just who he was. You reckon he'd be a good podcast guest? Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you wouldn't get a word in. Um, but, look, he was utterly, utterly charming. And you got him talking. He, he didn't really shut up. And you, you might occasionally be able to go, yeah, well, can I just ask you this? And he'd go, don't interrupt. But he would be loving it. And he would want to be centre stage. And I'd be pushed into the background somewhere. And he'd just drag me up as his girlfriend, you know, not the writer of his story. That's amazing. Um, final thing I wanted to touch on from this, you, upon reading and doing a little bit of sort of um, extra research, the survivor guilt seems to be a real strong theme for everyone, all of the little survivor stories that I've come across. Um, can, yeah. can you talk a little bit about what you found during your, your discussions with him to do with the survivor guilt for the prisoners of Auschwitz and I guess all of the other concentration camps? Oh, absolutely. And the many, many survivors I've spoken to, you know, the ones in Melbourne who he introduced me to. And I think Australia got the second or third largest number of Holocaust survivors outside of Israel. Um, And so I had privileged to meet hundreds of them here. Not too many of them are still living. One very special lady still is. And they all exhibited uh, what I would say, and I'm no clinician, I'm no expert here, but just through talking to them, that every single one of them had a degree of survivor guilt. How could they not? And uh, talking to their family members, that, that actually was always confirmed and, and borne out by talking to their children or their adult grandchildren. It was a matter of um, did it stop you living the best life you could? Now, with Lali and Gita, it didn't stop them because the day they got married, they made a promise to each other 
that the only way that they could honour all of those people who did not survive was to have the best life they could. No good, he said, would come of us not having the best life we could. Uh, and so I met many others like him. And uh, there's two particular ladies in Israel right now who I'm very, very attached to, who's going to be, they're going to be my next story. They're 94 and 96. And um, yes, they did that same thing. They got on and had the best life they could. But then I also met so many who have struggled. And that survivor guilt, um, it's been proven that it actually can get passed down through genetics and to children and even to grandchildren. There's some fascinating research being done on that. Wow. And, and I've, yes, once again, I've seen children of these survivors, you know, now adults with um, children and grandchildren of their own, and even they know that they are carrying that trauma. It's, it's bizarre the way that this nature and nurture combines. Final thing, actually, I promise we're going to get on to Stories of Hope, which is a new book in a second. I'm going to guess you'll have read Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Yes. Yeah. What Was there anything upon reading that, which is, I guess, one of the other very famous insights into that world, was there anything... Yeah. Um, extra that was illuminated everyone that's listening will know that i'm a massive fan of that book um upon reading that did you start to draw any threads that you hadn't before oh absolutely same with our primo levy's book too um you know night in particular and yeah the, the, so the storylines are different but the same and that's the whole thing about uh, Holocaust survivors i think or any survivor from any kind of evil or uh, horrific period in history that even the, the, I met survivors who said to me, a couple, we also met in Birkenau. And they each had their own version of their life there as well. And that's why I think um, I've been so delighted with how the Jewish community all around the world, from, from here to the Europe, to South Africa, Canada, the States, how every person in that community, everyone's been touched, every Jewish person's been touched by the Holocaust. And they all want to say to me, thank you for recognising that there's an individualism about surviving, that it is wonderful that the historians and academics have told the story of the Holocaust for decades, but uh, hearing just the one story, be it Victor's, be it Lully's, um, be it Silkers, whoever, you can relate to the one and uh, see the common threads and then their own individual survivor skills. Are you familiar with some of the studies that have been done on how um, humans are affected by altruism requests? So there is a um, really unfortunate effect that everyone appears to fall prey to. If you are to show an advert for one particular, a, a UNICEF or a, a Support Africa Starving Children advert, and you have a single uh, girl there, the impact if you have the girl and her brother or the girl and her family or the girl in her village decreases. So yeah. people donate less, the more um, it's a little bit like, I guess, the, it's called the witness, uh, that uh, witness effect where you all think that yes. someone else is going to ring. I think it kind of starts to dissolve down the story. So you're totally correct. Obviously, the, the numbers of the, the Holocaust are absolutely astronomical and, and, and terrible, but it doesn't drive a learning point home in the same way that a single narrative does because 
you can't mm. you can't learn to love four million, ten million, twenty million people, but you can learn to no. you can learn to love one character, right? Absolutely. And look, it's been borne out to me a couple of times uh, with regard to that. Here's a story that someone sent me a, a clipping from a newspaper in the States, and I think it's a few years old, but a gentleman in New York, a Jewish gentleman, he got obsessed with trying to work out what six million of something would look like, because that's the, the, the figure that uh, they say six million Jewish men, women, boys and girls uh, died. And he started collecting paper clips. And he, well, he drove his wife out of the house because he started making a pile in his living room and he collected six million paper clips. And he apparently then looked at them and he reached in and he just plucked out one and he said, this is the only one that matters. Because he could not comprehend or relate to that huge pile. I think there's something no. for a lot of us to to learn there about the the fundamentals of human nature especially if we want to have impact with people. Um, a lot of the time, objective measures of success that you see, Instagram followers, book sales, money, um, that sounds on the surface of things great, but as you've identified there and, and the studies that I've just brought up show, that doesn't impact in the same way as going very, very deep and narrow. Uh, so moving yeah. on to the next book, the new one, Stories of Hope, why have, you, mm -hmm. why have you written this and how does it relate to your first novel? Well, after um, a year of Lali's book being out and travelling around, the people I was talking to were still coming to hear me talk. Yeah, this, this kind of still um, overwhelms me and I sort of struggle. A bit. You really want to come hear me chat? You were here last year when I was here. And it's wonderful. But, of course, so many people now have read the book. So when I'm now going and getting up in front of 100, 500, whatever number of people that are in, in the room with me, um, they actually don't want to hear, have me talk about the book. They want me to tell them about my time with Lully. They want to hear the bits about Lully that are not in the book. And so that was one reason. But the other main reason that Stories of Hope has come about was really from day one virtually of the book coming out, I have received thousands of emails from people all around the world. Now these, oh look, I'm, I'm terrible. I've read a lot of books because I've been around a long time and I have never written to an author. And so I'm feeling really bad about that. And I think maybe I should do that. So um, Michael Connolly uh, and David Baldacci, the letter's coming. However, they weren't just writing and thanking me for the book and saying how much they enjoyed it. So many of them were sharing something very deeply personal, painful traumatic about their own lives and saying that from reading about Lully and Gita and Silka, they found a sense of hope that they actually now could overcome or start to walk, work towards overcoming this tragedy that was in their lives. And I'm talking about thousands of these, absolutely thousands, Chris. And some of them are just incredible to know that somebody is going to attempt to continue carrying on after she had given up hope, having seen her brother being collateral damage in a drive-by shooting. A young man, second year of university, with everything to live for, why? Why did this happen to him? The couple who have been trying for years and years to have a baby and finally have a baby that then dies 16 days later. This is the kind of letter and email I get. 
the 50 plus year old woman in Germany who had just found out her grandfather had been the engineer who had designed and built the gas chambers in Auschwitz and felt she had no right to continue to live with that being her background. So when you start getting these stories, and of course I write back to, to the ones that are really, really personal, um, I have to unfortunately rely on my manager to write back to a lot of the others and say, hey, this read your, your letter, because I read them all, um, and respond. And so in talking about that, and then when Silke came out or was coming out, I was in Kosciuszko in Slovakia doing some research for finishing off Silke's book. And I was there with my publisher from London, Margaret. I picked her up in London and off we went to Kosciuszko. And we'd spent a couple of days talking to these amazing friends and neighbours of Silke's and finding out now, once again, talking, listening, listening, hearing about this amazing woman and uh, a couple of days, I think it was maybe on day three, and that night, Margaret and I, we, we had dinner in the restaurant in the hotel, and we had a drink of wine or two, and then somebody pointed out there was this downstairs bar. And so the two of us found ourselves wandering down into this dungeon of a bar in this um, yeah, average hotel in Koshita. Uh, and we were over a few drinks. I think she said we'd progressed to the port at that stage. I'll get a bit vague there. But um, she started. We started. She started asking me about. She said, like, she'd been observing me, okay, because she's now was with me while I'm talking to people, and it's not the same, by the way, when you have to do it with translators too. You, you, uh, your head's going in all directions. And she said, I was watching you listening. She said, it, it really is something else. She said, have you always been able to just listen and focus on the person talking to you? And I went, well, not really. I said, nobody listened to me at home when I was growing up. I said, oh, with the exception of this one person in my life, my great-grandfather. And we started talking about that, and I was just telling her, and I wrote write about it in my book, how this old man, who was well into his uh, sort of 80s at that point, when I was 10, 11, 12 years of age, how he taught me to listen. And he used that word, listen to me, listen to nothing, listen to yourself. And so I had uh, several years with this amazing man. And from that, she said, oh, I think we can do something here. How about we take a little break from historical fiction and throw in stories of hope? What's the outcome that you want uh, people to get from stories of hope? If there was something that people would take away, like a single lesson, what would it be? That it's never too late to start listening. And how you do that is actually... Not that difficult. And I give a few clues, particularly if it's like listening to your elders. And that was the other thing that so many people were saying to me. I wish I'd asked my dad or my granddad to tell me about his life. And I was hearing so much regret from people who had had a, you know, an elderly person in their life that they'd never bothered to sit down and get their story from. And, uh, and I think that's quite sad to have that regret um, look, I've got it too. I probably didn't listen to my dad or, or ask my dad enough to tell me about him. Uh, and so there was that. And the people who were saying to me, how can I get my grandfather, my, my mother, whatever, to talk to me? So it was like a double whammy thing. I love this. Uh, uh, I love this quote from the book. Listen to your elders' advice, not because they are right, but because they have more experience of being wrong. Awesome. Exactly. <laughs> so good. Exactly. 
Yeah, they've made the mistakes. Uh, you don't have to learn from them. And I think that's the other important thing. You, By the way, you do get to make your own mistakes. And uh, that that's something that, as a parent, I rammed home to my kids. No, I'm happy to talk to you and we'll chat about things, but you get to make your own mistakes. You're not going to lead your life off mine. And um, and if you've read the book, you know that I too made a very serious mistake only 12 months ago with my daughter and uh, and her newborn baby. And um, that just goes to show that, yeah, we all make mistakes. It's try and pick up on it quickly. And that could have had quite dire consequences. Yeah, it did actually for, for a period. And um, I'm very, very proud that she and her husband agreed for me to write this uh, storyline. And I've already had a couple of uh, interviewers like yourself, uh, two women in particular who have said to me, you have no idea what reading that story about postnatal depression uh, meant to me. I had a sister. I had a friend, similar thing. We didn't know how to cope. The elders point, I think, is really interesting um, because in this new 21st century YouTube podcast verse that we're in, and obviously I'm contributing to that problem myself yes, by are. providing this content. Um, Thank you, self. In the past, um, our evolutionary history, our elders would have been the ones who had acquired wisdom, right? They would have been the ones that we would have turned to. Um, and I think that that's certainly been forgotten in the 21st century because the gateway to information access, all of the friction has been removed. I can access anything I want instantly online. I don't need to go to my granddad. I don't need to go to the tribe leader or the shaman or whoever it might be. I don't have to go to them. And conversely, you have more liquid intelligence, um, a little bit younger. Your crystallized intelligence continues to, to rise as you get older, but your, um, f sorry, fluid intelligence peaks at around about 21. So you think, well, the quickest learners in the world are these chess grandmasters who are, you know, young age. So I should just focus on the rapid, um, access and, uh, digesting of information at that young age, which kind of casts off the wisdom of the old. But as you've said there, you don't necessarily need to be taught how to do something. It's how not to do something which can be just as informative. Oh, absolutely. Um, and most people would have an older person in their life, even if it's just a neighbour. Uh, they love talking. That's one thing I have learned is that they're hungry for someone to listen to them. And I can't help but think that as we come out of the, the pandemic, that there have been so many elderly people who have been totally alone for months. I'm not asking everybody in the street to go and find their, their neighbour and sit down and chat to them. But, you know, it wouldn't hurt you. And even if you don't learn something, you know you are giving back. Now, there is nothing more rewarding uh, than actually giving you don't have to be receiving even your, any wisdom, any advice. Uh, uh, it's, I, I kind of get a bit upset that some people just think that I'm just an ordinary person and I haven't had a remarkable life. Well, to me, there is no such person in existence. Everybody uh, has got something about them that is remarkable because it's unique, it's them. But you just don't know it. And like Lully, he just kept, he would just say, but I was just an ordinary man. And I went, yeah, but you were living in a pretty extraordinary time. 
that's the, and, the, and, the bizarre and, thing about all of, all of our lives we feel they're so mundane of clothes because it's just familiar mm -hmm. to you right exactly um and that's not the that's not the reality really it may be yours because and hey maybe this is why we jump to the next sort of chapter or i don't know how many more it is the listening to yourself and the importance of doing that because if you do learn to do that at a deeper level than you're probably doing um, now because i don't think much many of us listen to ourselves too well uh, unless you are into that kind of spiritualism that you do go and meditate and that doesn't seem to be the norm amongst people I know. They're, they're beating themselves up. Um, they're not taking time out to just sit down and look at the, their own body, their own physiology. How am I reacting? Uh, can I feel my blood pressure going up? Uh, they're not having that just internal you know, conversation with themselves. It doesn't have to take long. It can be done quite quickly. Do it in the damn shower. That's enough. I know that's why I did a lot because you, yeah, you're on your own. Well, and the else other to do. Thing, there's nothing else to do. <laughs> and the other place that can actually help you get into that state of being relaxed and content, I find, um, is a pet. That if, if you're hanging out with your dog, that dog's not asking anything of you. And I used the dogs of Lully's to help me when I was getting upset because the two dogs are always with us. And often when I was hearing something that was really starting to you know, get me distressed and I didn't want to shut him up because he was on a roll, I could just reach down and I'd just stroke one of the dogs, stroke one of the dogs. Um, and so I, I think dogs and, and cats to a lesser degree because cats will only let you do it if they're in the mood. But um Try listening to yourself a bit more. Yeah. I, I think a lot of people struggle with the fact that the inner monologue that they have is not very friendly. Um, yeah. The negative self-talk that we've accumulated throughout our lives. I put in my newsletter this week, there's a lyric from a song that I love called, I wouldn't talk to a friend the way that I talk to myself. Oh. Um, and yeah. sadly, that's the way that a lot of people's inner monologues go that if it was a friend or another human outside of you that was saying the things that you say to yourself, they'd be your worst enemy. And you yeah. can't turn that off. So it doesn't surprise me that people don't necessarily want to turn the volume down. And this is where you see uh, individuals who can't bear to be alone, who are constantly need to be with someone surrounded by a friend in a group um, or substances, alcohol, drugs, whatever it might be, because that silence starts to let them hear quieter voices that they really don't like the sound of. And um, if it really is that bad, then they, they need to sort of get someone who can help them with that. But just did they ever get to that point where they realise that that they need some some help to, to shut that voice up? Um, and I also think that the whole notion and, you know, gosh, I'm using it. I'm talking about social media and, and Facebook and I remember when it first came out hearing more, more friends of my children's boasting about how many friends they had on Facebook and that whole notion of what is a friend. And a friend is not some person that you've never met, but you decided to say accept when they asked you to be their friend on Facebook. Uh, I think that sort of can be you know, very, very, well, it can be quite damaging for a lot of people to think that that's the only outlet they've got for a friend. 
And I suspect that things are going to be even tougher in the next few months as we come out of uh, COVID and the damage to the mental health of a lot of people. Already we're seeing it here in Melbourne. It's quite significant. And just in the last 24 hours, uh, the, the police have shot a man because he was having a mental health episode and charged them with a knife and they had no choice. And even though we're in lockdown here in Melbourne, I mean, real lockdown, a curfew, can't leave home. If you do, it's for one hour maximum a day. And uh, that is just going to take a terrible toll. I'm not sure that any book on or stories of hope uh, can make much of a difference. But, um, yeah, all I can say is if you've got a neighbour. And look, and this is the funny thing, and this is what we're seeing here in, in Melbourne. We went into lockdown, and during that first lockdown, everybody was out on the street, everybody was knocking on neighbours' doors, everybody was bonding together as a community. It was fabulous to see, and every, the papers and the media were full of all these beautiful stories of how we were pulling together. And then we came out of it and we got a little taste of freedom, and then things went pear-shaped in Melbourne, and so we got locked down again hard, even harder than before. But people are not responding the same. They're going, no, 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 I've been there, I've done that, I'm not, I don't want to do it again. And now we're having riots, we're having people taking it to, to the police who are trying to enforce these very strict rules and laws that have come into the town, and very, very different to the first time. So we really only had one shot and we blew it. I think that that's the, the major concern. You can probably get people to comply to some discomfort once, but getting them to go yeah. back and, and burn their hand a second time. You know, once you put it on the stove once, you can put it, chalk it up as a, right, that's a lesson to be learned. But then being mandated to go do it again, it, it, it kind of doesn't surprise me. Uh, going back to the book, we, we've talked about elders, but also there's some wisdom apparently in children. Now, I have not a massive amount of experience with elders, which I'm really sad about. Most of my grandparents have passed, which, which is a real shame. Um, but I spend even less time around young children. There was a story um, that you pulled out from your own life. You said you didn't want to grow up to be like the female role models that you had in the 50s and 60s. Your relationship yeah. with your mother and grandmother seems really distinct from the world that we see around us now. Could you tell us a bit about that and how that upbringing shaped you? Oh, absolutely. Well, there's two aspects to it. And one of it is that I was growing up in a time when children were to be seen and not heard. And it, I was quite an observant little thing. I had four brothers, and so I was on the outer straight away. Um the, the females in my family, my mother, my aunts and my grandmother, and we all lived in quite close proximity in rural New Zealand, they never, ever spoke to me except to yell at me, growl at me or tell me to do something. There was never any conversation. Uh, you know, I've not really admitted this to anyone else, but my mother actually said to me so many, many times when I was growing up that she was sorry that she had me, that she was sorry that she'd had a girl. To her, she could see no life other than the one that she thought and found herself trapped in and that the boys were going to be fine because they could go away and, and have a life. And, you know, that, that was a pretty tough thing to be told for, you know, all your impressionable years that someone's sorry that put you on this earth. Um, and, and my grandmother, she was uh, extreme even more. Uh, so, yeah, I did not have that. Now, here's the thing about being a parent that, that I took on board. I looked at all the things that my parents 
had done to me and brought me up. If, though my brothers and I say we weren't brought up, we were dragged up. And looked at the few things that I thought were okay and then made sure that I would not duplicate as a parent all those, those behaviours that I thought hurt me and uh, were not productive whatsoever. You know, my adult children accuse their father and I of now of not being tough enough on them. I mean, you just can't win. You're either too damn tough as a parent or and now I'm hearing from these adults in their 30s and 40s, you weren't tough enough. You let us get away with too much. And I'm not going to let you know, my kids do that. And I'll go, oh, well, you just take what you like from my parenting and uh, reject the rest because that's what we get to do. But yes, I think mother-daughter relationships are, are complex uh, at the best of times. Um, I'm really, really proud to say that I don't think mine is with my daughter because I worked bloody hard to make sure that she uh, did not have any of that baggage that I carried. It did not transfer. In fact, the first words I said to her when she was about a minute old and I held her and I looked at her and I said, you will never be a victim. And to me, making sure that as a female, there was no victim mentality ever allowed to creep into any of her behaviour or, or anything she said. And you can do that really subtly. She didn't know what I was doing. But um, the whole any time as a child, she said, oh, the boy, because you know, she had two older brothers, of course, you know, but the boys are doing it. Why can't I? Is it because I'm a girl? No, it's because they are significantly older than you and they've learnt that rite of passage. <laughs> uh, but yeah, when you listen to them, um, listen to kids, and what I'm enjoying now is listening to my grandkids. Uh, they are just delightful. And the whole notion which I talk about of listen to the little things, really listen to them when they say that um, the, that their brothers whack them, uh, yeah, empathise with it and say you'll talk to them, but hear them and let them know they've been heard because you do not want them to become teenagers and then not talk to you. That's the worst time that um, they can suddenly say, well, she didn't listen to me all my life. Why should I start telling her now my problems when those problems now matter? It's really bizarre, isn't it? Throughout the 1900s, parents focused everything they could on getting children to walk and talk for the first three years of life and then sit down and shut up for the next 15. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. You did not have an opinion or a thought or even a feeling, which is very sad. That there was just none of that. Well, look, I'm, I can only talk about me, and that's all I ever talk about in this book. And I think right up front, I make it really clear, guys, I have got no qualifications for telling you anything. All I can do is yeah, tell you a bit about me, and that wasn't easy to do, can I say? <laughs> I, I, yeah, pretty much. What did we say right back at the beginning about the importance of having the individual narrative? You know, having the single story that is the delivery mechanism. And it, it, it helps us. We live our lives in narratives, you know? Like, we can think that we're these logical creatures, but for all of our history, all of human history, stories were told through mythology, through archetypes. Um, that is the, the beauty of the storytelling art form, which I think in a world where 15-second TikTok videos and... Um, even hour-long podcasts, this still probably isn't like an entire night spent around the fire with the elders talking these stories, et cetera, et cetera. 
Um, there's probably still room to be moved on the on the ceiling of long form conversation, um, and yeah, allowing people to immerse themselves in stories like that, I think, is is really important. Oh, absolutely, it is. Um, is this show censored? Fire away. Okay. Uh, I love it when my publishers t say to me, um, we think you've always been a storyteller. And I would say, well, that's not the words my family use. They called me a bullshit artist. <laughs> because I, I know that I did talk and want to tell stories. Nobody listened to them, but they just would, you know, accuse me of talking a load of bullshit and living on a, cow, a farm with cows. You know, that was the appropriate phrase, wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, because I actually love telling stories. And even if, say, half of them are made up, isn't that part of the, the um, fun too? You can start out with a little pearl of a storyline and then yeah, why not just embellish the hell out of it and see where you can go with it if you've got somebody prepared to listen. You were obviously a budding novelist, weren't you? So how can everyone that's listening now be a better listener when they leave this podcast? Um, first of all, recognize the difference between listening to the person in front of you for the purpose of responding or are, are you actually wanting to hear what they've got to say because here's heads up guys if you're talking you're actually not learning anything you're just repeating something you already know and and to be able to distinguish between oh he's saying that and look his body language is saying something as well that there's more in the words and in the body and once you start doing it, it's actually incredibly rewarding and it's not difficult. It can come quite easily. Uh, there will be times, of course, and the majority of times when you're in conversation. A conversation is different. That's a to and fro thing. Uh, that, that's not a really sharing of anything uh, in the way that um, somebody's wanting to tell you something about themselves, that whole aspect of making yourself vulnerable that, that you mentioned. Um, and if somebody does that to you, you know, you, you get to feel really honoured and, and respect it for what it is. In terms of listening to other people, elders, what I found often works is to find an object or something they've said and hone in on that. And if it's your grandmother and you've been visiting her for the last 25 years every Sunday and everyone's been there and you've never really sat down, Go back and pick up something off her mantelpiece. You've been looking at it for all your life. Guarantee there's a reason it's sitting there. And if you ask about something, there's your in. So people are not going to just start talking to you for the hell of it. You have to find an in. The exception being kids. Kids are going to babble at you nonstop. You're going to have to just sort of pick out what's in there. Uh-oh, maybe I need to stop what I'm doing and respond to that. And you're only going to do that 10% of the time, trust me. I've been there, done that. But you know what? 10% is better than none at all. And, and I think I mentioned in the book watching my five-year-old uh, grandson you know, yelling at his three-year-old sister, um, uh, you're not listening. Rachie, listen to me. And I looked over and there was little madam just turning it back on him because he's wanting to show her something and, and involve her in something. And she's not going to play ball. And he just was getting so upset until I went over there and I sat down. And what's the problem? Reggie won't listen to me. He's five. And that's the word he uses. You're not listening already. And so I turned Rachel around to make eye contact with her. 
and just very simply said, do you not want to listen to Nathan right now? And she said, no. I said, do you think you might want to listen to him later? Might. Okay, well, why don't we negotiate? When's a good time for Nathan to come and talk to you and you'll listen? As simple as that. Ten minutes later, she was listening. Schedule slots in. If you if you could get the kids a – your manager. See if your manager's got a little bit of spare work capacity. Maybe they can schedule in some some time slots. What's your availability to speak? And what's your – and then they could put it on a calendar, share, share it on Google Calendar or something like that, and then they'd be fine. And that would be absolutely great because that's how we did this. So – it makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, you, talked about, you talked about how to listen when someone's going through or been through trauma. Is that a specialist um, type of listening? Well, yes and no. Once again, it's something very easy. But the other problem we have uh, when we are listening or when we're having a conversation is that we're hardwired not to like silence. And when there's that person stops speaking... The, the need to jump in and get rid of that silence is, gosh, that's overpowering at times. But sometimes, and that's that's the whole thing about listening to people in traumatic or tragic circumstances, they say something, and if you actually do just shut up for a little bit longer and just give them that room to formulate something else to say, you'll probably find that they do. And And it's knowing when to actually then come in and ask another question, but more often than not, uh, talking to people during that kind of time in their life, you're better off going for more silences and letting them come and fill that gap when they're ready, not because you've gone and pushed in. So that, that's the other trick. Embrace I, the silence. I love that. I really do. And it's something, as an only child, um, talking was, being able to share was a rarity. And I think that cultivating that ability to sit with silence is something that really I've only developed in my adult life only recently. Um, but everyone that's listening knows that, right? Especially if you're not, you're not thinking sufficiently about the conversation that you're having, or maybe you're not mm. feeling very confident around the other person or just generally not too confident. And you, you feel like every second has to be filled with noise of some kind because if you're not talking, maybe that's because you're not interesting or maybe because it's because you don't have anything to say or maybe they'll think that you're not interesting. Oh my God, what if, what if it's, what if it's, and you just garble and, and, and sort of babble words out, which you don't need to do because even on this, this show, which is being listened to by other people, you know, million people a month listening to what is said on this. Oh. And some of the best episodes that have resonated with people, there's a guy called Daniel Schmachtenberger, who is a philosopher comes civilization engineer from uh, LA. And some of the weights that he had during a, an episode I did with him were 20 seconds long, 20 seconds of pure silence in a podcast that was only an hour and a half. And he wow. consistently was doing that. And um, the people that enjoyed the episode really resonated with the silence so that's, you know, from someone who is being fairly heavily, rigorously critiqued online for the way that they converse, I can say mm. that the conversations in which I've allowed the silence to sit the most have had the biggest impact. And that's in a very transactional relationship with people who can't even interject. So they couldn't even contribute if they wanted to, because, you know, I'm not listening to them listening to me. Um, as that was a real, that was a, a real insight, um, allowing Daniel to have his, He's a very uh, considered speaker and I knew that he was going to have these gaps. So, but I could even, even when that was happening, um, I, 
I, you have it's like vomit. It's like you have this sort of visceral response and your shoulders come up. Yeah, it's like you want to gasp for air. You want to say a thing, get the word out when it's quiet. And that's not that's not necessarily always the best way to deliver or to um, allow a conversation to manifest. No, uh, it, it absolutely isn't. And I, that's a great example. Oh, wow, I love that. Um, and the other thing too is that it, if, if it is a conversation and you don't know the subject matter that well, you don't know what they're talking about, it's actually okay to say that. How often do we try and bullshit our way through something when we really don't know it? Uh, and I've learned that it's actually okay to say, oh, look, I'm, no, I'm sorry, I'm not up to speed with that. I don't know that. Admit it. You know, if anything, that may give that person you're talking to the um, the right then to tell you more if you want to know more. But sometimes it pays to be honest. You touched on something at the very beginning saying, if you're talking, you're not learning anything. And that is such a basic, obviously such a basic insight Sometimes you synthesize ideas that already exist in your head while you're thinking or talking, but really it's, unless you're Einstein working with like this unbelievable foundation, um, for the most part, it's actually best for your development to just hear what other people have. So the most selfish thing you can do from a personal development perspective is to selflessly listen. Yeah, yeah. And you'll allow oh, them to imbibe whatever the other person's got to say. I can't own that that quote about um, if you're, you're talking, you're not learning anything new. It was the Dalai Lama that uh, said that, not me. I'm just pinching it and paraphrasing it. And um, yeah, and I think of one of the things I was talking about. I sort of said, you know, if you you have to just shut up and and listen. And the the person talking to me said. I don't think the Dalai Lama would have used the words shut up. And I went, no, never mind. But, it, you know, it's my version of it. It's what he meant. It's what he yeah. Meant. There was a word that you used in the book that I haven't heard in years, earwigging. And, oh, my God, like if that's not a way to um, make young children lose a love of listening, it's to give it this, like, um nasty kind of naughty terminology to it which just makes kids feel like the oh i shouldn't i, sh I shouldn't be doing that it's even got its own term like it's yeah. it's literally the way that they learn it's the way the only way that they're going to be able to learn apart from you know seeing what you do hearing what you say is next yeah you feel like you're a bad person and you're not bad uh yeah in retrospect i think and <laughs> Maybe I didn't want to listen to a lot of the conversations going on with my uh, female family members because uh, sadly I think they were just gossiping. When I think about it now, uh, the amount of information that I earwigged and overheard, majority of it actually wasn't nice. It was gossip about you know, other people either in the family or in the, in the village. Uh, but maybe that is just a small town sort of syndrome. <laughs> Come on, guys, take a look at me. It's pretty obvious that I did not grow up in the time of television and everything I learned had to come from radio, which I was only allowed to listen to on very small occasions because if the cricket was on, then my dad was listening to it. <laughs> I'd have no problem with the cricket being the primary source of information for children growing up. I think that there should be more cricket at all times. Uh, it's the England, the day that we're recording this is the third... Uh, in the series Text of the, the what's that? 
It's the one day, or is that on? It is. It is. That's tonight. It'll be your your morning tomorrow, but my my night tonight. So I've messaged my mate Sam Billings, who will be listening to this episode way, way, way in the future. Sammy boy, I need another hundred from you tonight, mate. If that's okay, thank you, uh, and that's good luck. Uh, before we finish up, what have you learned during twenty twenty that's reframed? some of the uh, lessons that you pulled out of Stories of Hope. Is there anything else on top of what we've already talked about? Um, it's just how, how much I've really learned more about what the power of a book and the power of one person's story. And I'm, once again, I'm talking about lollies to affect people. And, you know, it got born home only a couple of months ago by one of these amazing emails I've got, and I'm, I'm kind of happy to share it because, to me, it just smacked me in the face. A 20-year-old young man wrote to me. He lives in Milan in Italy. And, uh, you know, Italy got hit and pummeled really, really bad really early on. It was, you know, where it was all really going down. I'm talking about the pandemic, guys. And he wrote to me, oh, gosh, it would have been, I think, in July, and he said to me that he lived in an apartment building in Milan with his parents and his sister. He hadn't left home for months. They weren't allowed out. And all around him, friends, family and neighbours were dying. He was hearing about these people he knew in his apartment building, family members outside who were dying of COVID. And he had dinner one night with his parents and his sister and he said, I told them, I've given up hope. We're never going to leave this apartment alive. His sister went to her room and came out with my book and gave it to him. He wrote to me 48 hours later, telling me that he hadn't slept. He had read the book and he was now writing to tell me that not only has Lully and Gita and Silka's survival given him the hope that he will get out of that apartment building, but he was going to dedicate the rest of his life to all those family, friends and neighbours who did not survive. That's from a 20-year-old young man in Milan. So I just continue to be amazed and overwhelmed by the bravery of people being prepared to share. I think it's a very... A, not a lost art form, but it's a, a, certainly a missing a missing piece of people's lives for them to read stories of suffering, resilience, overcoming discomfort. Um, because the lessons that you can learn from that, books like The Tattooist, Man's Search for Meaning, um, Endurance about uh, Sir Ernest Shackleton's uh, voyage across the, the Antarctic. Um <laughs> Uh, the Forgotten Highlander by Alistair Urquhart. Have you read that? No, I haven't. You will absolutely adore it. He was um, captured by the Japanese in World War II, one of the Scottish regiment, um, kept, okay. on a, kept on a death ship, uh, basically had dysentery for five years, built a bridge over the River Kwai, locked in a tin box in uh, heat, then um, taken to another town, got knocked off his feet by the aftershock of the atomic blast from Nagasaki. Everything that could have happened to this guy went wrong and then kept quiet for 60 years. Very, very similar. I think you'll really, really enjoy it. Um, but I mean, that, that is a, a, a sort of a more old story, but a recent one. Only yesterday, Tim Ferriss, guy that wrote The Four Hour Work Week and The Four Hour Chef and The Four Hour Body, this unbelievably well-known, multiple times New York Times best-selling author with an amazing podcast and millions of newsletter subscribers. He released a podcast um, 
where he tells the story um, that came back to him during a DMT experience about five years ago. And it turns mm-hmm. out that between the age of two and four, he was sexually molested as a child, as a baby, an infant. Um, and he sits down with his friend who is um, also a, a trauma survivor. And this is Tim fucking Ferris, right? This is the the guy who has spent 450 podcast episodes talking to the best performers on the planet about abstract ideas. How can I utilize the idea of sleep to enhance my performance so I can get more done in my day? Or what's the best way to pulse um, inf- alternate day fasting or whatever it might be? Like, how can I have more sex? How can I do this, that, and the other? But all of these are abstract ideas. And then Tim totally changes everything. There's no musical intro. There's no nothing else. There's no podcast sponsorship. And he says, look, like this episode is incredibly personal, probably the most important thing I've ever done in nearly, you know, half a thousand episodes. Um, uh, Please, like to my friends that are going to message me when they hear this, like I accept that, uh, please accept that I'm not going to necessarily be able to reply, all this stuff. And it's just super heartfelt. And he's spent months working his way up to it. He tells about how he'd written this book that was ready to be published after his parents died because he didn't want his parents to have to live with the guilt of knowing that they'd let this happen to him between the ages of two and four. So he's then had to go through all of this stuff. And I'm listening to this podcast and exactly the point that you're making there, which is a single person story from Tim is so much more impactful than the, even the abstract ideas. I'm a lover of knowledge, as is everyone that listens to this show, but Jesus Christ, like that delivery mechanism, the way that he's able to utilize his own story and obviously the the subtlety and the detail that you can only get from having lived something, not just learned it, um, yeah. is, is one hell of a way to get a point across. And I think that mm. ties in with what you were just saying. Oh, look, thank you for referring me to that. I'm, I'm going to find that because I really do want to listen. And um, I'm going to throw one back at you. It's a book that you don't even know exists yet because I think it's coming out in January and it's called Nine Lessons for a Remarkable Life. Who's it by? And, and it's written by a London journalist, Nadia Komani. Well, she's writing it um, with this 100-year-old man who lives in Florida. His name is Benny or Benjamin. I, Trouble pronouncing Eastern European names, but it's spelled F E R E N C Z. And this this one hundred year old man, Nadia, managed to, a bit like me with Lally, she managed to persuade him. I need to tell your story. This man's story should be told in volumes. She writes it in under two hundred pages. Yeah, the, the the immigrant from Transylvania into New York. The upbringing in the 1920s in New York, putting himself through Harvard, really incredibly decorated World War II soldier in the American Army. But because he was a lawyer, the American Army um, got him to be one of the first prosecutors of the Nuremberg trials. He subsequently was the person that that, uh, instigated the International Crimes Court. Now, this man, he tells his story with such humour and beauty and simple Every single word you can relate to, even though this is a man whose brilliance is off the scale and is, his life is anything but 
um, the most remarkable one that I've read in a long, long time. So look for a remarkable life. Yeah, nine lessons for a remarkable life. Nadia Kamani. Uh, she, I think she's with The Guardian or something. Yeah. I'll put it on the list. Uh, Stories of Hope will be linked in the show notes below, of course, available on Amazon. By the time this goes up, it will be available yep. everywhere. Uh, anywhere else that you want to send people? Any other stuff that they should check out online? Oh, no, look, I think people, if you put in a word, just put in a word, Google it and, and let it take you wherever you go. I do that. I love that. and get lost for hours. Waste too much time. I'm meant to be researching my next book, but, you know, I just, oh, find a word. Oh, that'll do. Um, look, just don't, never stop learning. That's all I say. And listening. I love it. Thank you so much for your time, Heather. My absolute pleasure.